Hello, this is Charles Hain with a filmmaker interview for the No Film School podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to filmmaker Mark Toya, who is an Australian director who's created who created the film Monsters of Man, which is a action robot movie done for 1.8 million dollars with 2,500 VFX shots, which is absolutely crazy to me. Uh, the film was self-distributed, which is a fascinating lesson for all of us in terms of getting your film out to an audience. So here we go, my conversation with filmmaker Mark Toya. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Mark Toya, the director of Monsters and Men, which is an amazing project. And there's a lot to talk about, but we're actually, before we talk about that, Mark, I, you know, one of the things our listeners always really like to know is like, how did you first get your start getting your career going as a filmmaker? I was a photographer, professional photographer, and uh, one of my clients asked me if I wanted to, if I could do a TV commercial. I practically lied and said, uh, yeah, I, I can do them. Uh, but in fact, I didn't have a clue how to do one. Then I did, I did it for him and I just sort of hustled my way through it and uh, shot this ad and had just friends show me how to edit, and, you know, and another guy told me how to use a video camera. And, and we made this ad and, uh, and apparently it was good enough to where I won some um, local industry award. I, I sort of won the best director and best cinematographer in my first attempt at, at, at an advertising award. And uh, next thing, people were hiring me to do that instead of photography. So my career bounced pretty quick. Uh, I think it, I was just at the perfect time, I think, where there wasn't, you know, 10 million young, you know, filmmakers out there to compete with. There was probably only a half dozen in the city at the time. So it, uh, and so this would have been the late 90s? Yes, it was, actually, yeah. And how had you gotten started then as a photographer? I mean, even breaking in as a photographer is hard enough for many people. Uh, yeah, look, I was, um, I was like a, a, one of those kids that could paint anything and draw anything when I was very young. Photography was just a hobby at the time. I did send a photo to a magazine uh, company, you know, of a yacht, and they sent me a check for $50. And I thought, wow, they pay you for that? I mean, I was blown away. I, I was sending it to the magazine for free. And then I sent some more photos to the magazine, and uh, another two or $300 turned up. And I went, geez, this is easy. So I just started taking as many photos as I could and just start sending to as many magazines as I could. And then the... Uh, and next thing, you know, it became a very uh, a, a career. And um, and I, as I was doing more photography, I started meeting, you know, advertising agencies and people like that. So I started getting into advertising work. And, uh, yeah, so it was a, a hobby that went completely nuts very quickly. And um, But obviously I was doing good work, uh, you know, or otherwise, the, you know, I don't think my career would have uh, taken off at all. Uh, but were you already interested in yachts or was it an accident that no you were I, interested? yeah i was racing yachts at the time so i just happened to take a snap you know with my camera but uh yeah no it was it was look i was it was a, during a time or at a time when there like i said it wasn't a very competitive industry photography and video it, i was obviously it was a, quite a dark science back then and too hard for a lot of people or too expensive for a lot of people so I managed to um, get into it quite easily, to be honest. It, it wasn't that much, that hard compared to this day and age where, like I said, you're competing with a lot of young people trying to uh, cut their way in the world at the moment. 
Well, and more than a lot of people, like there's so many people who'd like to do it and feel like it's possible to do it now, but there's also just way fewer magazines in need of images. So, you know, there's popular Instagram accounts, but they're not paying for imagery from people. So you're, it's just sort of a much different animal than it was much. even 15 years ago. Yeah, very much. It's, it's a completely different beast. Uh, you know, you can, you can stand out, you know, in this world. You just have to do exceptional work and make sure the world can see it. So you've just got to use social media and all these other platforms to uh, to be seen because it's a very noisy world, but you've got to invest in yourself and your quality of work and invest in your personal marketing because, you know, there's a lot of... I've taught my son how to make a good living from, you know, film and TV by him learning all these tools, him getting his work out there, him putting himself in front of clients. So, you know, it's it's not like it's a dead business at the moment. It is tough, but you just need to do good work and you need to make sure that a lot of people know you exist. They're still making television commercials and they're still paying people to make tele. I mean, there's more television commercials being made than ever before. And there's more, you know, and people do professionally get hired to do that. It's just a different ratio of people who want those jobs versus the people who were competing for those jobs before. Yeah, no, you did right. I'm a, I'm a big believer that um, people won't use you if they don't know you exist. So you've got you to put some time and effort into the marketing of your own brand. Well, and then the thing I always try and remind all my students is you have to keep reminding people you exist. Like the point of Instagram isn't proving that you exist. It's, oh, we worked together two years ago and you might forget about me, but like once a month you see a cool thing I do, I just sort of stay in your brain when the right thing comes up because it is easy to forget people. Oh, you're dead right. You know, out of sight, out of mind, especially when there's 200 people banging on that same client store each month. Oh, yeah. So you spent about 20 years directing television commercials all over the world. And then you decided to make a feature monsters of man, which came out uh, late last year. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This was financed independently. Yeah. I, I decided to pay for it myself uh, or my wife and I, another hobby, another, a crazy hobby. Did you try and finance it traditionally first? Did you, did you pitch it to a bunch of studios or did you just immediately say, I don't even want to spend a year of my life doing that. I'm just going to go and make it now. Uh, look, Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I just I've seen a lot of my friends that make movies go through that, you know, one, two year, three year, four year, five year process of begging for money, especially when they're a first time filmmaker and you've just and you've you've not, you don't have a, a track record. It's even harder this this day and age, right? Because a lot of studios want to know that you can actually finish a film. So whether you have a bunch of highly successful short films or you have a movie, they just don't want to touch you. So. I just I could see by, like I said, all my uh, friends that have struggled to do that. So, and I was in a position where my business is strong. My wife and I have got a property company as well that we, you know, we do things. So we, we're in a financial position to where we could uh, fund the film ourselves, and uh, and then I could have far less stress going into it, and just do it my way. And uh, yeah, we, we're sort of not under any pressure in doing it which made it easier for, for me personally to, you know, break a lot of rules, should I say. Awesome. So, you know, traditionally, every once in a while, directors are in a position to do that. I mean, famously, Tarsem was able to do that on the fall using commercial income, but then also famously on the fall, uh, Tarsem went a little over budget because one of the problems when you are self-financing is when you're the one deciding what the budget limit is, it is very easy for that to creep up 
in a way where you're like, well, I need that shot. So I'm going to figure out where that money comes from. And so I think Tarsem's original budget on the fall was like $4 million. And then by the end, he'd spent $16 million or something crazy. Uh, Those numbers might not be accurate. I heard that in another interview, but like, you know, when it is your own money, it's a different animal. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, Tarsem and I, like I, I quote against him a fair bit still doing ads even this day and age. So, you know, we've sort of uh, been competitors on commercial bids a lot. And, you know, he, he's obviously a different filmmaker to me, but uh, I'm probably, I may be a little bit more frugal, but he's been part of a big machine where he's used to having all the toys and all that sort of stuff. So maybe he, maybe he pushed a bit harder than he probably uh, wanted to or needed to. Uh, but he did, you know, end of the day, he did a beautiful film. It was, it was amazing looking movie, and he, and he's renowned to be a a very art director based uh, director. You know, so he's really into the visuals, um, and and it showed, you know, in, in that film because the film was a, a beautiful looking movie. We are sort of, you know, I was I was sort of being brought up in the land of because I wasn't brought up in a conventional advertising industry when I started making ads I was always I've always been that corner cutter guy so and we do a lot of post ourselves and and editing and shooting ourselves and everything so I sort of didn't really need to um, overspend I should say like you know because we owned everything and we could do the post in house we could do the lot so we we had a different sort of beast behind us which so you were able to reasonably like estimate what it would cost and then come in sort of on target yeah, look, I, I I did go over budget, but I decided that uh, the movie was going to be better for it. So we were actually on point, and, but and as we were shooting, I thought, you know what? It's because oh, originally the Monsters of the Man was only going to have maybe a half dozen visual effects shots in it, you know, of of the robots, a bit like the movie Quiet Place, and you know, just we just see the just see the monster. It's more, uh, you know, mysterious. Just, yeah, it's more mysterious that we didn't see it, but. Once we started shooting uh, some of the scenes, I went. I, I just stared at these these guys walking around in blue suits, <laughs> and I went, "Wow! Imagine if we imagine if every single shot was a robot in the scene, just like a person was, right? So we don't we don't hide them. We like literally the the first or second shot in the movie, we see a robot, and I went, "Stuff it, let's do that." So you know, in doing that, in changing my mind, obviously we went over budget straight away because now we had to. No, sorry, the production budget that stayed the same as the post-production all of a sudden amped up. But again, we did, we we did, we ended up doing $3 million worth of post. Like we had, uh, we've got over 2,500 uh, visual, visual effects shots in our movie and we've completed all of them for under 500 grand. When we were getting prices for post at the time, we were running up around two, $3 million dollars. Going from six VFX shots to two and a half thousand VFX shots is a is a dramatic shift that would change any budget. <laughs> um, that's never going to run you the same price. And was it vendors that you'd been working with in your commercial career, so you already had r- relationships with? No, no, we no. I've because we I've, I do a lot of post production myself, um, and I and my all my overflow work goes out to people all around the world. I set up a. Uh, a like a virtual post house type thing in within Frame.io, and we got all of our artists scattered all around the world, uh, all working directly to back to me, uh, you know, on through Frame.io. Uh, so we literally set up our own post house, but because I'm, I'm, 
like I said, I do a lot of posts myself. I'm very clever in how to manage posts and how not to waste money in post. The way we did it was, uh, you know, it was very frugal but very effective. We, we were able to, you know, do photo real robots quite nicely. And, and, you know, end of the day too, robots are easy to do. You know, they're not that hard once you know how. Well, because there's no hair, there's no skin, there's no realistic human eyes. It's surfaces that are easy to create. Yeah. So because you understand what needed to be done to be built in post, when you were designing a project that needed VFX, you designed from like the story point VFX that were within your wheelhouse. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, for sure. But I just knew, you know, if we did, if we did skin, if we did eyes, if we did high, high reflections, you know, things all of a sudden start amplifying. And when we decided in doing a, a robot movie, I knew straight away that you can do robots quite effectively and affordably. You just need to build a really, you know, really good models. It was one of the reasons why we did a robot movie because we could do, get huge production values with post-production, uh, you know, 3D post-production that is not that really that taxing. And, and if you watch the film as well, you can see that I didn't really shoot much feet, you know, where the robot is touching the surface and we didn't run the uh, robot behind trees too much and all that sort of stuff. So there was plenty of ways to make the movie look big without getting yourself too caught up in difficult post-production procedures, you know what I mean? It's that classic trick that the more you understand how something actually works, the more effectively you can execute on it on like a reasonable budget. I used to have a post house and like, you know, the number one thing that pre-production was all about was like client education of like, oh, within your budget, if you want to do X, you know, this is actually going to cost you a third as much. But then like literally, as soon as you widen out the shot to see the feet, everything changes and it becomes five times harder. And so like, you know, that navigation, you already had all of that knowledge from having done this so much in commercials that you were able to be more strategic in your planning on set. Yeah, that's right. Because I wanted to see the the robot touch trees and leaves and move around them, but we just put all those trees in afterwards. So you know, if you ever if you see a robot running around or standing behind a, a tree, that tree it wasn't there. So it's easier to put a tree in in place than it is to rotoscope a tree. So there's so many little tricks and ways of doing it that's going to save you a fortune. But you know, if you, if you don't think of those on set they can really catch you out and post. So all of a sudden you've got a shot that might only cost you three or $400 to do. All of a sudden it becomes a $4,000 shot. You know what I mean? So you just, yeah. that, again, yes, it's been clever, but that's just experience, you know, with post that you could do that, you know. So were you effectively your own VFX supervisor? Uh, on set, yes. Uh, during the post-production, I got another fellow on board because I had to go off and, and get back into my TV commercials. Uh, but I just monitored everything. And I did a lot of compositing as well of the movie, but I needed a super in place just to manage all the, all the um, you know, all the other um, animators and, and artists that was sort of stashed around the world. So I had this fellow, Ray Teague that was looking after us, uh, looking after that for me. But everything still had to go through me. So, you know, if I didn't press the approve button, nothing would happen. So I'd frame my own. But, you know, it was fun. Like at, at nights I would sit there and composite a half dozen shots together just on my laptop. I could be in an aeroplane, in a hotel room, whatever, and, and 
and, and Rayo would cop, cop a few more and you know he'd done a heap as well so it wasn't we we're both very good compositors so it was it was quite easy to uh, comp these robots once we built these these particular models and the way we were uh, we had our workflow it was very efficient like some of the robot comps I think we were finishing in like two minutes it was very quick that's crazy so when did you shoot uh, we shot about I think about five years ago now uh, so I edited the movie in my again in my spare time then we once we had the picture locked uh, then we just ran through a post model which went for about a year or so and then I sort of wasted a, I blew a year away trying to traditionally sell our movie through tra- traditional means until we decided to self-distribute instead which has been you know a far better exercise to be honest yeah, I've worked around self-distributed features for a while, and like there are certainly times where a project belongs in traditional distribution when you have when you fit into a certain type of movie and you have a certain size of actor. But for the vast yeah. majority of movies, self-distribution uh, offers you a level of in- attention to your marketing, attention to placement, attention to promotion that you're never going to get in any other way. No, you're not, and you know I think we've got. Our marketing for our movie has been outstanding. But, again, that's my 20-something years or 25 years in advertising. I knew how to do that already just naturally. So to do all that marketing was quite easy for us. And we, and we had massive reach. You know, we were like 50 million views around the world. It was, you know, accumulative, obviously, through multiple platforms and and uh, outlets. But it was, you know, it's we really... I'm quite proud of what we achieved from a marketing sense for a little indie film. And it was good. You know, we were we were uh, sitting there number one and number two behind Tenet and, uh, on some of these big platforms. And uh, and I, I contribute that to good marketing. And, you know, and a lot, we had a, a, an instant fan base that jumped on board and that, that pushed it up high very quickly. But, uh, you know, it all, you can't, Again, you can't sell a movie without pushing it. So no one will know it existed, right? Yeah, marketing is. You know, if you know, I I know so many people who are like, oh, you know, I just can't wait to get to the premiere and breathe. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, (laughs) you you have another year of constant promotion for your movie at least before you will then maybe get to breathe. Um, Especially on an indie project where so much of it rests on the the director and producer to keep pushing the project for as long as they can to try and get it out to audiences that can connect with it and hopefully create some word of mouth. So are, are you doing another feature now? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, uh, in, we're in the middle of, of prepping on two more. And, uh, but this time I'm just the hired gun. I'm just a, the, you know, a hired director for those particular projects. Uh, we've got about, since uh, Monsters of Man was released, we've had about 30, maybe 40 scripts come in now uh, from producers all around the world. And and uh, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing and plate spinning and planet alignments going on. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of movement out there. There's a, a lot of movie work uh, being pushed our way. Uh, I've just got to, you know, end of the day, I'm just sort of at, if I, do, if I go in as a hired gun, I'm at the mercy of, of the producers and the way they want to produce their movie because it is their movie. Uh, so I don't. I'm trying not to get too involved in their um, production side of things because that's what they want to do, and, and I'd rather them do the job that they want as long as I can deliver what I can. You know what I mean? 
I'm doing myself doing a couple more projects of our own. Um, yeah, I'm very much thinking about it. We've got it. We've got. We've actually got a couple more that we're about to do. Uh, we're just going to firstly just get our income back from this particular film, which obviously it, it's never a fast, speedy thing. Uh, but you know, we've we've been quite successful with the movie so far, but it still takes time to get that money in. Uh, but you know, we we we've got a few things going on at the moment here and in a good way. Well, and that's one of the things a lot of people I think don't understand about the, the sort of uh, digital release model and stuff like that is, you know, if you're used to doing something on YouTube and you put it up on YouTube and then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can see how many hits you got. And then you release, you know, you release a feature film on VOD, you know, cable video on demand. And three months later, you might get uh, a very confusing report about how many people streamed it and you'll get revenue share revenue share from that another six months later. So like, you know, the instant gratification you get from the YouTube world isn't really the same in feature distribution at all. No, definitely not. But you know, I, I everything that we've that's happening is uh, was was told to me in detail. So I'm not I haven't had any shocks or anything. Uh, so I've been quite lucky. And we have you know we did have some traditional sales as well. So we have sold the movie to, you know, Germany and France, uh, Taiwan, Japan, um, Italy, Baltics, you know, like all over the place. So it's it, there is, we sort of done some uh, normal territory type sales and we've done, uh, and we jumped in the TVOD ourselves, obviously in all those major TVOD platforms. Uh, SVOD, we're, we're literally about to start getting into some uh, SVOD sales. And then we'll um, and then we'll slowly slip into the Avod sales after that. So, really, we're only in the first sort of phase of our movie selling. Um, but it's good. It, that is a good time to be setting your next project up. So it sounds like you're sort of doing that and uh, getting things moving. And then have has your you know I talked to some people in commercials and they say that through COVID they've been just as busy. Like after maybe a month of slowdown everything was back up to normal speed. Like how has your commercial business been doing with the pandemic? Uh, well, look, Australia sort of shut down. You know, Australia's not like America. That America just kept on ticking along, I suppose. But uh, Australia really did a big shutdown. We just literally were all stuck in our houses for a few months. And, uh, it, and it took a bit to get going again. And now it's up and running. Yeah, there's a lot of work on. Like here in Australia, there's, you know, most a good portion of American movies that would normally be done in America or being done over here now. So there's a real crew shortage. There's a studio shortage. Uh, there's uh, just too much going on here at the moment. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's better to have none, right? It's better to have not enough. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no, there's a lot of work going on. And uh, I'm very busy uh, with my ads. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, it's a very busy Australia at the moment. I'm not sure how long it's going to last for, but at the moment it's very busy over here. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it is always really exciting to see people sort of actually do the journey from commercial to feature and to use the what they learned in commercials and, and the money they made in commercials to finance a feature sort of completely on their own terms. I think that is really awesome. So thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, no, that's thank you. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's it's quite the journey, and I'm more than happy to share with people how how we did it as well. It's uh, it's something that I want. I'd love to see other people enjoy, 
and, and, you know, and try and do it in a smooth, stress-free way because I, I see a lot of my friends doing it a very stressful way and there's got to be easier ways for people to uh, have fun in the industry still. It doesn't have to be miserable to do this and I don't know why some people think it has to be miserable or you're not making a movie. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I honestly, the whole film's been a real pleasant journey and, and quite the stress relief. It, it wasn't hard to do. It wasn't difficult to make, and uh, you know, I, I actually used it as a bit of therapy, to be honest. You know, ads, as you know, can be fast and furious. Uh, the whole, you know, making a movie, I don't think is that difficult. Well, and fundamentally, but, you you put yourself in a position in an ad. There are always creative directors and brands and agencies, and there's always so yeah. many stakeholders giving opinions, and you put yourself in a position where you're like, oh, this is my movie. My opinion is the one that matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so again, I just wanted to treat it like a hobby and to have fun with it, you know what I mean? But I, I'll tell you what, as a hobby, that just the, the sales distribution side is, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's really enjoyable. I'm really enjoying the distribution side of it. It's actually quite, I, I think it's because it's something I'm, I've never done before, uh, just, the, just the learning of it has been really, really great. Have you had any mentors through learning that process? Uh, just look, I'm sort of, I'd been learning by a lot of my friends' mistakes and them telling me, don't do it like this and don't do it like that, don't do it like this, because they've fallen foul to those, to these things, you know what I mean? You know, and there's been a couple of sales agents that have sort of, they want me on their next movie and distributors. So they've sort of, they've been helping me through this journey as well. And they've been quite lovely uh, doing that, uh, you know, because they've got an agenda, a long term agenda, and I get that. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, pay them back one day for their knowledge. It's try to put yourself in a position where you're not going to get um, stressed out over it, you know what I mean? And I think that's the key. And knowledge, you know, knowledge, knowledge is power, obviously. And I didn't rush this whole journey because that's when you start tripping up. That's where you start making mistakes. You know, you've got to do a lot of research and a lot of learning and, and do things right. And, and especially with the film industry now, it's so ever-changing, especially from a distribution standpoint. And now that like movies are really devalued uh, now, like the it's not like Netflix are doing panic buying like they did five years ago. They were sort of spending five or ten million dollars on everything, but now they'll, you know, Netflix will barely give you a couple hundred grand for your show. So it's sort of it's you know it's a different world out there now uh, from a uh, from a sales perspective because no one really wants to pay for content anymore. So where is the industry going? Uh, that's the big question I am asking myself as well. You know, but it seems of... like if you're in a position to make amazing content with great effects for $3 million or $4 million, there's probably going to continue to be a market for that. It's just whether or not $175 million movies make as much sense in a streaming universe, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot less tent poles, that's for sure. I think look, I've got... Some guys that have been they're, they're wanting me to direct some movies, and they're doing like 25, 30 movies a year, and uh, and they're just looking for every director they can at the moment to knock these films out because COVID slowed them down for, down for twelve months. Uh, but most the movies they used to do, they used to do a whole bunch of you know, they used to do like five, you know, fifty million dollar films, ten. $10 million films, you know, about $25 million films. So they had this sort of range of movies that they did each year. 
And uh, one thing was, you know, they know the market very well because that's what they do, right? They're, they're really at the forefront of content by making expensive content. And they said like, they don't know if they'll ever do another $50 million film ever again. They go, that's just the math just doesn't work out for them anymore. The, they said if a $20 million is probably the new big film, the new, you know, the new norm. Uh, $5 million and under, you know, f- between two and five is probably going to be a majority of films this day and age, which is sort of depressing, but, um, but you know, they're selling these things every month. And if you can find a way to do interesting work in that budget space, you might not get to have Brad Pitt in your movie, but you could still, you know, if you master the skills, like, because a lot of people hear a $2 million movie and they're like, all right, write out no VFX. But then you just did a $3 million movie with 2,500 VFX shots. Um, no, well, our, our film was $1.6 million. Oh, $1.6 million and 2,500 VFX shots. So, like, if you <laughs> learn what you're doing, if you master the actual real deep skills of working with a VFX team planning properly, you can still do amazing things in that budget range. I mean, your director's fee will be smaller. Um, the yeah. food won't be as good at lunch, but like, so what? You can still do these like really crazy, interesting, effective things in that range. Yeah, and you, you know, I think, you know, you might you might get your feet just so you can eat and survive, but you have to get, you have to have a bit of ownership in that film too to make it worth it. Oh yeah, absolutely. No good working for um, you know a, a year on a film, you know, for pennies. You need to uh, you need to think about from a sale perspective to be reimbursed. You know, which is but, why uh, every director needs to know a lot about how distribution works because it keeps changing and that can dramatically affect you know the the deal you want to strike and how you want to get back end revenue out of it. Because yeah, I don't. Yeah. If you're doing work for hire on a $3 million movie for someone else, your upfront free is so low, you need some sort of back-end revenue, especially if they have a business model where they know they're going to sell it. If they've worked that out, then you should have a part of that if you create the thing they're selling. Yeah. Or you hit them with a fee that they might choke on, but the reality is you're out then and they don't, you don't need to annoy them for the rest of their life. So it's up, it's up to the deal that you do with those producers. And the, the guys I've been talking to have been quite good. Because you know the, the the initial offers we were getting were like ridiculous, and I go, uh, no, I'm not really interested. You know, because I'm from an ad game. That it's I'm, you, you go if you're doing a movie, you're taking a huge pay cut. So I just hit them with a fee that I'm happy with, and if they don't want it, it doesn't matter. You just walk away. Uh, but you know, end of the day, it's about what you bring to the project. And because I come in, I am the DOP as well as the director, and I bring special effects to the table. I can bring a lot of other things and some good production skills to the table. Um, all of a sudden, I become very affordable because I'm wearing a few more hats, you know. But, uh, you know, who knows how this whole world's going. I, I'm i still... Um, uh, I, I'm not sure I really like the moving business just yet, <laughs> but um, it's definitely, it's definitely uh, interesting, that's for sure. Well, and you're in a nice position where if you don't like it, you don't have to participate. And you've got, it sounds like, projects of your own you're also developing. So you've got a whole lot of irons in the fire, which is good advice for anybody in this industry, I think. Yeah, well, it is. And now that I've made a film, a lot of the buyers out there, a lot of you know territory buyers are out there, they all want your next one. You know, So if I was to go out and, and do my next film, it's easy to get money. It's far easier to get money now. Because you know, people are always, the, 
like most of them want to buy in advance. You know, they want to do pre-sales on a script they don't even haven't even seen. You know, one guy, you know, from uh, Indonesia, I think, or no, uh, no, Singapore, and you know, he looks after all of Asia. He said, "I don't care what you do. How much do you want? I'll pay you now." Because he just wants in. He doesn't want to lose the opportunity. Because we didn't sell our movie to him, and he was a bit pissed off. But so, but it's amazing how hungry a lot of distributors are out there. They're very keen. They're very desperate for content. Um, so you know, it's it's not like it's a dead business. You just got to make sure you get all those ducks in a row and get a lot of buyers in a row, a lot of people that trust you and know that you're going to do a good job. You know, I think as a filmmaker, all I've done with that movie really is I've proved to a whole bunch of producers out there that I can do a very good movie for X amount of dollars. And then, and now they're all going to look at me going, now what is he going to do if we give him this much money? I think that's the best thing as a director is you, you still got to go out. you probably got to bite the first one to prove to the world that you can do the second, the third, and the fifth one, you know. So uh, it's, it's a good calling card, that's for sure. So that was filmmaker Mark Toya with the film Monsters of Man, independently produced $1.8 million with 2,500 VFX shots and uh, self-distributed, which is an amazing feat and something that should inspire everybody trying to get their film out to an audience. Be sure to check out the podcast, all of our interviews with filmmakers galore, and check out the website at filmschool.com. And if you enjoyed this, please be sure to like and rate and subscribe. It's been Charles Hayne. 